We're going to start with a, a story about uh, an American hero. It's the guy in the middle. His name's Brad Castle. And uh, I hopeful that hopefully it'll be a good lead-in to, uh, to where we're going to be at in the Bible this morning, which is 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Sergeant Brad Castle in the Marine Corps in 1984 from rural Iowa. He said, I always wanted to be a Marine to see the world and make a difference. Currently, he's recovering from wounds that were suffered um, immediately preceding when this picture was taken. Um, the 38-year-old bachelor is confined to a wheelchair while he endures a painful medical procedure to put his right leg back together. They turn the screws so many notches a day, he explained, matter-of-factly, from his home in Oceanside, California. It would be easier if I had someone to take care of me, but I have lots of friends, and they help. <clears throat> this, this was from the Battle of Fallujah two years ago, and uh, I'll be explaining the, uh, the action that, that uh, preceded this photo. Uh, Brad says, I believe in leading from the front. It eases the young Marines' minds and concerns to... S- and, and their concerns when they see me up there with them. That is where I belong. Speaking of the battle, he said, we were moving down the street, building, a Marine wounded from a building, and there were three wounded Marines trapped in a bunch of bad guys. As we entered, we noticed several dead Iraqis. Castle said there was no question of what to do. If I was a general, I would still think that my job was to get the wounded Marines out of there, he said. So we went in to get them out. As soon as he entered the two-story stucco and brick building, Castle found himself in mortal combat. It was fighting to the death, and there was no quarter expected or given. An Iraqi pointed an AK-47 at me, and I moved back. He fired, and I and he fired and missed. I shot and killed him. I put my barrel up against his chest and pulled the trigger over and over until he went down. Then I looked around the wall and put two in his forehead to make sure he was dead. While Castle and a young private first class, Alexander Nichols, were taking out the insurgent behind the wall, another one with an AK hiding on the stairs, firing at the Marines. That's when I went down, along with one of my Marines. That's uh, Alexander Then I noticed the hand grenade. It was a green pineapple grenade, Castle said. It flew into the room out of nowhere and landed near the, the two downed men. Castle now believes that other Marines who were watching their back left the room for reasons he still does not understand, and an insurgent was able to somehow get behind him. Castle said his first instinct was to protect the young Marine lying bloody next to him. He covered the young man with his body and took the full brunt of the shrapnel to his back when the grenade exploded. Castle's body armor and helmet protected his vital organs, but the shrapnel penetrated the exposed portions of his shoulders, back, and legs, causing him to bleed profusely. I took my pressure bandage and put it on his leg, Castle remembered. Then I tried to put, a, to put Nichols' pressure bandage on a wound on his chest, but it was very hard to get a flak jacket off a wounded man, and I was bleeding and fading in and out. Nichols survived the grenade blast and his previous bullet wounds, but lost his right leg. An artery was cut, and they had to amputate his leg, Castle said. I have seen him and talked to him several times since we got back to the States. He is doing okay. The grenade blast stunned Castle. He floated in and out of consciousness. But in the back of his mind, a voice kept telling him that he had to stay alert or the Iraqis were going to come back and finish them off. They weren't going to let us live if they knew we were alive, he said. Castle wrestled his 9mm automatic out of his holster and lay on the floor waiting for help. It was 30 or 40 minutes before the other Marines arrived. That's when I got shot in the buttocks, Castle recalled. He didn't use that term, by the way. 
<clears throat> it was it was a shootout at the OK Corral, point blank range. I was lying there shooting, and somebody shot me through both cheeks. It smarted a bit. Castle did not know the exact extent of his wounds until much later. All he knew was that he was badly hurt. He was floating in and out of consciousness, ultimately losing 60% of his blood before he was rescued. I took seven rounds, five in my right leg, one in my foot, and one in the buttocks area. When the grenade went off, I got 30 to 40 pieces of shrapnel in my back, Castle said he later discovered. Doctors are still fighting to save his leg, Castle said. By the time his, this story appears, he will be back at Bethesda for more treatment, but the doctors don't know for, won't know for six months whether the Marine will ever be 100% again. I know I will walk again, but I don't know if I will fully recover. Meanwhile, Castle experiences almost constant pain. I'm missing four and a half inches of the fibula and tibia bones, he said. They put that halo brace on my leg to try and make the bone grow together, but there's no guarantee that it will work. He goes on to say that he's still supportive of of his uh, of their efforts there and and of the president and um, he's just a picture of somebody who has uh, who has been faithful and has given who would have given his life um, for his fellow soldiers. Now there was another man 2,500 years ago who was also fighting in the Middle Eastern and. Instead of being abandoned by his comrades in the fog of war like Brad and his other Marine were in that room, uh, he was abandoned on purpose, uh, premeditated um, to be, for him to be killed so that David's sin could be covered up. I'm talking about Uriah the Hittite, and we'll be um, speaking about um, David's great sin that of that he had with Bathsheba this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The reason that I chose this was because it's easy to forget that when you think of David and Bathsheba, you think of adultery. But when I read this story to my children in a highly paraphrased children's Bible, it still, even in the simple language that it used, it reminded me of all the different things that David did to cover his sin up. And it was kind of a, well, I, I, didn't remind, I didn't remember that. And so I thought it would be a good reminder, a good picture of us, of what, just how ugly the process of that sin is. And I think it's instructive for us to, it's a good negative example. As we read, I'll be interjecting commentary. And as we read, you can think of these... Uh, of these uh, sins that David did. He was idle. He coveted. He lusted. He lied. He murdered. He had extreme pride and hypocrisy. Beginning in verse servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed home at Jerusalem. So much for the sayings about when kings go out to battle. David wasn't one of them. He stayed home. He decided he'd have uh, some nice leisure time while his subordinates did the hard work. This isn't the, this isn't the valiant King David we know about from, from earlier. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. He'd been taking a nap and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. 
So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now at the end of this, at the end of 2 Samuel, there's a chapter that's devoted, just it's a roll call of David's valiant men, his special forces, his bodyguards, however you want to describe them. And Eliam is, is in there. And so is, in fact, the very last person mentioned in that list is Uriah the Hittite. These weren't nameless people that was offending. These were people that were of value to him and that he knew. They weren't strangers. They weren't pagan Canaanites. They were of his own nation. They were his most trusted people. David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. There's some I've read two different commentaries about um, her uncleanness. One that it's a menstrual cycle, and one that's them having sexual intercourse. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting that they could be that different in interpretation. But at any rate, um, it's clear from the rest of the story that Uriah is not, or that Bathsheba is not pregnant by Uriah at this point. And so, what happens later is all about David and Bathsheba. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, at this point, the stakes uh, are much higher, obviously, because now there's evidence of the adultery that they've, that they've done. And this isn't, this isn't um, just an out-of-wedlock pregnancy like, like we might have in our culture, um, that, that happens outside of marriage. And the stakes are much higher because um, David's the king and Uriah is um, a trusted comrade. And the law, if you went by the technicality of the law, uh, David and Bathsheba would have been... Um, the, the punishment was, was death for that offense. And so the stakes are high to cover this up. So... Then David said, uh, verse 6, David said, sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Joab's the general of the army. He's, he's the one that's committing, prosecuting the war against the sons of Ammon. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. That's bull, okay? He, wasn't, he could have asked anybody, but this was all a pretense to... Uh, to get Uriah home to his wife to cover up the true father of the now pregnant Bathsheba's little baby. So David's lying and deceiving already. When Uriah came to him, oh wait, verse, verse, um, verse 8, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. You know, when you want somebody to do something, you can, use, you can use carrots or you can use a stick. And David's using carrots right now. He's hoping that this will all just sort of go away and no one will know anything and we're gonna, this, will, this will all just work out. Um, but Uriah throws a wrench into the plans. But Uriah, verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, 
David said to Uriah, have you, come, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in, the temporary, in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Uriah is a faithful person. He is, um, he is faithful to his comrades in arms who are suffering, and he knows he can't enjoy his house and his clean um, feet and his wife. He can't enjoy that while his fellow soldiers are suffering, and, and he knows that's where he should be. He's got to wonder what's going on. Um, so he doesn't do it. And I find this interesting, the oath that he uses. By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. You know, I could be reading too much into this. But when he says, you know, the life of your soul, what is David losing by the minute as he conspires? You know, what is sin, the cancer of sin robbing him, as it were? It's robbing life from his soul. And I just, the, I don't know if it's just to me the words, the way those words struck me, it's like... Um, David's losing the very thing that, that Uriah is, is mentioning here. So David says to Uriah, stay here, also, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Isn't this great? Now David is resorting to the tactics of Lot's daughters, getting people drunk to, to, to get his, his, his plans accomplished. Um, you know, aren't, aren't they the very, you know, the, the offspring from Lot and his daughters? That's just the very people, that's the pagans that they're fighting even right now. And I, I find that ironic that he's resorting to those kind of tactics. It's not so much different about them. Um, and also, I want to say this. Isn't David putting Uriah into a difficult position by, by these orders? Just like I'm sure he put Bathsheba into a difficult position earlier. You know, when you're the king and you come up and you tell somebody to do something, people do it. And, and so, you know, I don't know what was going on with Bathsheba, whether she thought that she had to commit adultery because the king said so, or if she thought he was a rock star and wanted to do it. I don't know. But... But um, Uriah did not, um, Uriah was strong enough and faithful enough that he stood up to the order of the king. He had that integrity, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't even do it when he was intoxicated. So, verse 14, the carrots are all done with now. Now comes the stick. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. David's going to make his trusted man carry his own death warrant to the general. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And feel free to sort of, in your mind, think about the, the, uh, the terrors of combat that I read earlier when you think about this whole process going on. 
The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to him, that had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now do you see what's going on here? Um, When Joab was told to, uh, in a sense, murder Uriah, they had to do it in a way that wouldn't look obvious. Well, that's not a surgical operation. That means that Joab was left to his discretion to create a situation where Uriah would die, would be killed. And so the way I read this, um, Joab goes against um, combat experience he's already, he's already known about, the, the, the battle at Thebes where Abimelech was killed. He knows that they can't go near the wall, but he knows that's a sure way to get um, Uriah in a, in a spot where he'll be killed. So he sends Uriah, not alone, but with other people too, a place where they'll be shot at, and then in the course of that battle, then they withdraw and Uriah is killed. But uh, notice that some of the other king's servants are dead too. So there's collateral damage. It's not just Uriah that dies. Joab knows that, that uh, he knows that David could be critical of his tactics because David's not a dummy. He's, he's smart when it comes to military things, and so he knows that, that Joab was, in any other situation or context, being risky by what he did. But, um, but then he'll utter the key phrase, the, the, uh, the code word, right? The code phrase, Uriah the Hittite um, is also dead. Well, all of a sudden that changes the whole context, doesn't it? Now David knows that Joab was using this combat experience in order to... Um, to uh, pull off the mob hit, as it were, on, on Uriah the Hittite. Um, you know, one other note about this, you know, David says, uh, do not let these things displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. You know, this contrasts to this, to the David who grieved Saul, the death of Saul, grieved the death of Abner, who was his rival earlier in First Samuel, or earlier in Second Samuel. Um... Abner was his rival, and Joab, bloodthirsty Joab, the general, had killed him out of, because of, out of revenge for, for a previous act. Um, what's Joab think of all this? I mean, David, earlier in, in chapter 3 of this book, David went after Joab and, and uh, cursed him and uh, 
for what for what Joab had done in killing Abner, and now David's turned around and done essentially the same thing, if not worse. Doesn't isn't Joab chuckling at the king's hypocrisy, deep hypocrisy? Uriah was a faithful believer too. He wasn't he wasn't a rival or an enemy of David until David made him so. Uriah means my the name Uriah means my light is the Lord. Even though he was a Hittite from Canaan, he had, he had been converted. He was a believer of the one true God. And yet, David has treated him worse than Saul and Abner. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, which commentaries say could be as long, all of one week, seven days, is, what it, is how long it could have been, When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The ten things that he had done, or however many. You know, every, just when you don't think it can get worse, it gets worse. You contrast Uriah's faithfulness to David's deceitfulness. You know, this is another one of those stories like Jonah where the person who should be the goat is the good guy, and David, who should know better, is, is the goat. Uriah was a believer who, who refused to indulge while his comrades were in the field, unlike David. He stood up to the king when the king told him to do something he knew was wrong. He gave his, he gave his life for his country. And David sinned and sinned and sinned some more. You know, to, con- to conclude, what conclusions can we draw? You know, it's a depressing story, and it's an ugly story. But it's a good reminder for us that if, if David's capable of it, then any of us are capable of that kind of thing. We may not have the, the authority. Um, we may not have the... Uh, the means to go as deep and the scale difference might be different in what he did than what we do, but the process is the same. If we don't cut sin off, if we don't short circuit the sin process, that can get it can get real ugly really fast. Uh, Marvin DeGroff, um, who many of you know, he had this favorite song, which I never heard, but he'd recite the lyrics. And if I remember it right, it went like this. Some of the lines out of the song says that sin will take you farther than you want to go, and sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And so, for David, it that was true for him. Uh, we, we won't go into the next chapter where his sin is found out, but he net because of what he'd done, David it cost essentially David's joy on his on earth for the rest of his life. The sword never left his house. It was his sons and daughters were in disarray. They rebelled against him. They killed and raped each other. It was it was a this is a living picture that sin brings death. Sin is death. It killed Uriah. It literally killed Uriah. It killed other people that were with him. It killed the it killed the little baby that was born of David and Bathsheba. It's something that 
we can easily forget when we're just in our insanity, we're thinking about sinning. We don't think about the negative consequences. We just think about what we want to do. And this is a good, powerful reminder that there are costs borne by real people, real costs like missing four inches of your leg bones or, or being killed, or it could be broken relationships. These are things that are really um, worth remembering when we think that we can sin and get away with it. My mother always told me that to be, sh- be sure your sin will find you out. And I think, I, I think that's, you've told me that's scripture, but I can't remember where it was from. But to me, it was just a saying that, that, that uh, made practical sense. It was short and to the point. And, uh, and I've remembered that. Um, God does not forget. You know, he will forgive, and he will forget our sin when it comes to holding them against us if we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. But, but we will have to give an account. It also, he also doesn't forget when we're faithful. You know, when I was doing a, a search for Uriah the Hittite in the concordance, I, uh, I found one in, in the New Testament. That kind of surprised me. But it's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. It's the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, and I'll just read it. It's one little verse. It says, Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. So God remembered and, and, was, and re- recorded Uriah's faithfulness by not forgetting who Bathsheba was married to and what, and what David did. David's sin was recorded and Uriah's faithfulness is recorded. So God won't forget if we're being faithful. He won't forget if we're um, making the sacrifice of not giving in to our to our carnality and our, on our own lusts. I'd like to, to close with a poem that was meaningful to me. It's called, If I Could Shut the Gate, and it's anonymous. If I could shut the gate against my thoughts and keep out sorrow from this room within, Or memory could cancel all the notes of my misdeeds, and I unthink my sin. How free, how clear, how clean my soul should lie, discharged of such a loathsome company. Or were there other rooms without my heart, that did not to my conscience join so near, where I might lodge the thoughts of my sin apart, that I might not their clamorous crying hear? What peace, what joy... What ease should I possess, freed from their horrors that my soul oppress? But, O my Savior, who my refuge art, let thy dear mercies stand twixt them and me, and be the wall to separate my heart, so that I may at length repose me free. That peace and joy and rest may be within, and I remain divided from my sin." Every child of God defeats this evil world by trusting Christ to give the victory. And the ones who win this battle against the world are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 5, 4-5 If we're struggling with sin, let's cut, let's cut off wherever we can, at the soonest that we can. We need to run to Jesus Christ, and we need to... Um, we need to come clean, and we need to when we need to fall at His feet. He's our advocate. He's our 
He's our brother. He's the one who stands before God the Father and, and, and says, no, I took the penalty for that. Satan's accusations can't, can't stick on us if we, if we confess Jesus. Lord, I'm thankful that you love us so much that you sent your son to be our advocate, that you've given us a way out of sin, that we, cannot, that we can choose to not grieve your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit can help us in our time of need. I pray that we wouldn't pretend that there wasn't sin and that, and that we wouldn't ignore it, but that we would face up to it. I pray that one day, I know that one day, all of our sin will be put to an end, either through death, our own personal death, or if you come back again someday. Please help us, and Lord, we give you all the glory that's due you. In Jesus' name, amen.